Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Today, more than ever, Americans are turning to assisted reproduction, such as sperm donation and surrogacy, to start their families. Today, we'll take a look at how laws are adapting to this shift, and we'll explore some cases where state laws on parental rights just aren't keeping up with the technology. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by Professor Douglas Nijame of Yale Law School. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me. We're going to get into the, the law right away, but could we start with an example This could be from case law or parents that you've reviewed their situation where the modern technology is there, but the law's recognition of it really hasn't kept up. Yeah, so we see that way too often. So uh, often you have people who are forming their families with, let's say, donor sperm or donor egg, and their healthcare providers are helping them do this. Their insurance is covering the services, and everyone is treating them as parents of the child. But the law actually hasn't adapted to this new reality. And instead, we might be looking to either common law or statutes that are decades, sometimes centuries old, that simply say, for instance, a person who gives birth is the parent of a child. Well, what if the person was a surrogate? or laws that say the um, genetic father of a child is the legal father. Well, what if they use donor sperm? That's a problem for both the donor and the legal parent. So those issues have arisen across states, and states fortunately have been responding by updating their laws, but not comprehensively enough and not in every state. So an example might be where a, a parent who's, let's say, the father in a particular case, but isn't the genetic father, then in the case of a divorce, their parental rights may come into question. Yeah, so, I mean, it happens differently for depending on the family, but the, the case that we've seen most often in recent decades is a lesbian couple who has a child together. Only one of them is the birth parent, and usually that person's also the genetic parent. And they break up or birth parent dies. And the law says, well, the non-biological mother might not be a legal parent. And in fact, the person who might be the legal parent is the sperm donor who, let's say, isn't at all involved in the life of the child. And so our law just simply hasn't caught up with both the realities of people's family lives, like the fact that same-sex couples are forming families, but also the reality of assisted reproduction, that people are donating sperm without the intent to be a parent of the child. Why don't we get into the weeds a bit? What does the law say about establishing parenthood rights? I I suppose traditionally, or I I understand there's some state-by-state differentiation, but what's out there? So generally, I mean, a lot of people think that parenthood is pretty straightforward, and in some ways it is, but I'll I'll complicate it um, in other ways. So It's always been the case under our law that a person who gives birth is considered a parent of that child. And it's also always been the case under our law that the 
man married to the woman who gives birth is treated as a parent of the child. That's what, so our law traditionally distinguished between married parents and unmarried parents. If a child was born to an unmarried woman, that child was deemed, quote, illegitimate um, in the eyes of the law and didn't have a legal entitlement to support from parents. Um, over time, the mother was given custodial responsibility for the child, but the um, child didn't have the ability to sue and support for a father-child relationship until, in many places, the second half of the 20th century. And so that gives us three big buckets, giving birth, being married to the woman who gives birth, and being a genetic parent of the child. I imagine for most of the, the viewers, that'll come as a bit of a surprise, the, the concept of parental support or child support from the father in an unmarried, in an unmarried re- relationship is relatively new. Yes, not only is it relatively new, so it wasn't until the late 1960s and early 1970s that the U.S. Supreme Court said states can't discriminate against children based on the marital status of their parents and that unmarried fathers had to be treated like unmarried mothers and married mothers and fathers. Um, But through much of the 20th century, there was a statute of limitations in many states in terms of how long you could even have to bring a suit for support from an unmarried father. Um, And states had one, two, five-year statute of limitations. Those were eventually struck down. But I mean, we're talking the 1980s. So it's a fairly recent phenomenon that we think that unmarried fathers are necessarily legal fathers and that they owe obligations of support to non-marital children. Fascinating. One other thing that I wanted to unpack, you mentioned that the law treats marital parents differently and that there's a presumption under the law. Is that in every state? Is there a presumption that the married husband is the father of the child? Yeah, this is a common law presumption that actually descends from the English common law. Um, And so we have always presumed in every U.S. jurisdiction that um, when a married woman gives birth, her husband is the legal father. And that presumption has become more rebuttable, weaker over time, especially with the rise of genetic testing. But originally, it was very difficult to rebut the presumption, even if we knew that the man was not the biological father. And of course, that made sense in a regime where if the child was deemed to then be a non-marital child, their status was that of a what the law called a bastard, an illegitimate child. And so a lot was riding on the status as a marital child. That status has become less important over time. That's fascinating. I, I remember there was some case from law school, I believe in California. Michael H. versus Gerald D. about the, the marital presumption and exactly. Justice Scalia saying law like nature itself recognizes only one father, but that father in that case was the marital father and not the one that we knew was the biological father. And so for the biological father, he was out of luck. Yes. As a little bit of a, a teaser for the audience, we'll be discussing a little later some, some new thought on how many fathers 
are actually permissible under the law. But we'll get to that a little bit later. I guess you mentioned three baskets of how paternity is established. One is within the marriage. A second would be outside of the marriage. What was the third? Well, so the third was parentage generally, which is giving birth. So that's traditionally how maternity was established. So is the birth certificate itself critical in some way, or, or does it establish parental rights? So a birth certificate records parentage. So it does not establish parentage. So there's a lot of cases where someone is on the birth certificate, but later a court says they're not a parent of the child. So what the birth certificate is supposed to be doing is simply recording who the legal parents of the child are. It is the case now, so in most states, when a married woman gives birth, the state is required to put her husband on the birth certificate. It might be that another man is the parent and that person might establish parentage and then the birth certificate could change, but that's the law. It's also the law that for a non-marital child, when a woman gives birth, the biological father cannot get on the birth certificate unless he signs what's called an acknowledgement of paternity, um, which is something that he would do ordinarily in the hospital. And that's the and that establishes parentage. And that's how he can get on the birth certificate. So over time, states have tried to, to lessen the gap between birth certificates and parentage. But people should be clear that birth certificates do not establish parentage. They are merely evidence of parentage. They record parentage. And the acknowledgement of paternity, is that a binding document in some way? Or is that something that could then be, I suppose, rebutted with a genetic test? Acknowledgements are fascinating because they are a creation of, in many ways, federal intervention into this traditional state arena. In the latter part of the 20th century, Congress got very involved with parentage because it wanted to collect more child support. It wanted states to collect more child support because rates of non-marital child rearing were going up. And ordinarily, you would see more mothers with custody of those children. Um, they might apply for government benefits. And the states and the federal government were trying to get more essentially unmarried fathers to pay the support that would otherwise be coming from government benefits. And so Congress passed a legislation multiple times, but one important piece of legislation required that states have what they called a hospital-based system of paternity establishment. And that's what gave us the acknowledgement of paternity. And um, it's available for an unmarried man to sign. He signs it with the birth mother. And that is then saying that he is the biological father and that he is taking on rights and responsibilities. When he signs it, he's waiving his right to genetic testing. So the reality is some men are signing this knowing that they're not the biological father. But the acknowledgement of paternity has the force of essentially a judgment of paternity after 60 days. It can be rescinded in those first 60 days. And so once that 60 days passes, it can only be undone under really challenging circumstances. It the federal law requires that it can only be undone based on fraud, duress, or mistake of fact. And in most states, just not being the biological father is not enough. What about if another 
father appears and wants to assert their rights. Yeah, so that's the other thing that makes the acknowledgments really influential is that if you're in a state in which a child can only have two parents, and let's say the acknowledging father is not the biological father, and then biological father comes forward, he might not be able to actually establish his paternity because another man already has done so. Wow, that's quite bureaucratic. Yes. You mentioned genetics as well as a way of showing paternity. How does that fit into this regime? Is that something that, you know, you just get a DNA test and that's good enough? Yes. So so generally, if someone is trying to establish paternity based on being a genetic father of the child, they can file a petition to establish paternity, provided there's not another person who's been adjudicated the father of the child or signed an acknowledgement. And they can move for DNA testing. Um, And then the parties could all agree, right? Because mom could say, yeah, he is the genetic father. And then they could just sign an acknowledgement and it all gets dismissed. Or if it's contested, a DNA test can settle that matter, but it would be ordered by the court. And then different states have provisions that regulate um, genetic testing for paternity purposes. But generally, the genetic test would show you this man, you know, it's 99.4% probability that he's the genetic father. Um, Now, I will say um, there's some people who cannot establish parentage based on genetics, like donors. So we'll talk more about that. Um, But also, a court, in many states, a court is authorized to deny a request for genetic testing if it wouldn't be in the best interest of the child. So let's say another man has been parenting the child um, and he's a father of the child legally, but now there's a man who says, well, I want to contest that. I'm the biological father. A court could authorize that or could say, no, we're not going to allow genetic testing because it wouldn't be in the best interest of this child who's developed a parent-child relationship with this other man. So it becomes very fact-specific. These family court judges have quite a bit of discretion for those who are watching with more background. Um, it, it, it relates to this notion of a court of equity, a court that's looking to fairness rather than simply following the rules. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I, I have colleagues who write about equity in private law and I always tell them family law is a good place to look because there are actually important equitable doctrines that remain in family law, especially when we're talking about children. Um, because courts are confronted with situations uh, in which they feel like the just result is one that requires perhaps a deviation from what the ordinary doctrine uh, might lead to. So sometimes there's parents in every other sense or, or, or in some of the other senses that we would uh, normally establish parental rights, but we allow them to opt out for the betterment of the child and for the, the sake of the parents who are actually intending to raise those, that child or those children. How does that work? Yeah, so with assisted reproduction, we've seen the rise of what I call intended or intentional parent doctrines. And so now in a growing number of states, you have statutes as well as case law saying that when someone consents to assisted reproduction, with the intent to be a parent of the child, the law should treat them as a parent of the child. 
And that then means that the person who may have um, submitted genetic material like sperm or egg to help conceive the child is not a parent of the child because they weren't an intending parent. We label them a donor, which is an odd term because they're not donating. They're almost always being compensated. But the provider of sperm or egg who is genetically connected to the child is at the outset not treated as a legal parent of the child. So they don't have any rights that need to be terminated or relinquished. They are simply, as a matter of law, not a parent of the child. And the intended parent is a parent of the child. That's not true in all states, but it's a growing trend. One last basket, and these are another, we use the term parent, we're going to use it in a few different ways in this conversation, but fundamentally, parenting is the person who cares for you, who raises you, and that can sometimes be someone other than your biological parent in a variety of situations. How about in those where someone is is simply the person who stepped up, who stepped in and helped to raise that child. Yeah, so this actually ties into your earlier point about equity because some of these doctrines began as equitable doctrines, um, but have since become statutory, you know, codified doctrines or part of relevant statutes in parentage codes. Courts were confronted with situations in which the person who was parenting the child Um, wasn't the biological parent, wasn't married to the biological parent, hadn't adopted the child. And they wanted to do what was best for the child. And that meant keeping the child with the person who they viewed as their parent. And so you had these doctrines emerge that I call functional parent doctrines. Um, They recognize someone as a parent based on functioning as the parent um, that um, now have really become much more widespread and exist in a majority of jurisdictions and are capable then of recognizing someone as a parent if they've formed a parent-child relationship and are parenting the child. And that, in my view, has become more important over time because there's a lot more kids who are being raised by someone who is not their biological or adoptive or legal parent. And it is best for them to have those relationships protected as a matter of law. And that's what the functional parent doctrines do. These are all happening after the fact. So it's important to recognize that the law has this interest in establishing parentage for children at birth or as close to birth as possible. That's why we like the acknowledgments of paternity. But these functional parent doctrines come into play after the fact, when someone's actually formed a relationship and suddenly the person who was the legal parent as birth is not actually the person parenting the child. I think of the example of a grandparent who stepped in when a parent was unavailable for for an addiction reason or perhaps even a a law enforcement, you know, incarceration reason. Uh, A grandparent stepped in and raised the child for a number of years. And then the child basically thinks of that person as their guardian, as their parent, and maybe they haven't formalized it under the law. Yeah, and I mean, I can tell you, having looked at all of the appellate decisions on these doctrines across the country, the range of situations, there's a lot of what you're talking about with grandparents stepping in when a parent is incapacitated, a parent struggling with substance use disorders. There's cases in which people, someone gives birth and immediately transfers the child to someone else and is never part of the child's life. And that's an informal transfer. It's not a legal adoption. There's cases in which a woman gives birth, 
is living with her parent and they're raising the child together. And then the birth mother dies and the biological father has never been part of the child's life. So there's just a range of cases. And there's cases in which the child never knows that the person who's parenting them is not their biological parent because that person's always been their parent. So those cases are usually involving families that have faced a range of difficulties. They often involve families dealing with housing insecurity, um, poverty. And so these doctrines are really important to provide a measure of stability for the child in that situation. Why don't we talk about non-genetic parents and how they can go about establishing their rights? I guess maybe maybe let's start with an example and then we can go through and discuss the law in a little bit more depth. So I guess I would I would think about it this way. We're pretty comfortable with people being recognized when a child is born as parents when they're the biological parents of the child. And we increasingly saw people having children through assisted reproduction and they weren't the biological parent of the child, but everyone knew they were the parent of the child. And for a married different sex couple, because of this marital presumption, we would treat the husband as the father. No one would ask questions. It started to become an issue mostly when same-sex couples and unmarried couples, which for most of our time was included all same-sex couples, were having children through assisted reproduction. And the original solution, so for, for most of of our history, that non-biological parent had no legal status. And eventually we developed what we call second parent or co-parent adoption, which is the non-biological parent could adopt the child. And that created a legal parent-child relationship. And that's still what people do in a lot of states. But a number of people started to say, people shouldn't have to adopt their own children. Adoption is when you adopt someone else's child. And so we have an interest in actually having these people recognized as parents, just like biological parents are when they're born. And so we've moved where, so if, if 20 years ago, lesbian couple has a child with donor sperm, the best thing they could do is then start an adoption process so that if the state even allowed second parent adoption, which many states do not, so that the non-biological mother could adopt her child, a process that would take months and cost thousands of dollars. Um, now we've said, no, we should actually allow that person to be treated as a parent at birth or as close to birth as possible. And so the way that we do that differs across states, but there's a few different mechanisms. One is a lot of people now can go into court and get what we call a judgment of parentage. So if you're going to have a kid through assisted reproduction, in some states, you'll be able to go into court during the pregnancy, before the child's born, and ask the court for a judgment of parentage, saying that both of the intended parents are the legal parents, and that judgment will be stayed until the child is born, but then will take effect. And this is a little bit more streamlined than the adoption process? Yes. So it doesn't require delay. It takes effect upon birth. It doesn't require an investigation of the parents, doesn't require a home study. If we're talking about non-surrogacy assisted reproduction, it doesn't require attorneys. And so it's much more streamlined. In some states, this is now being called a confirmatory adoption, 
which is just a way of saying that the judgment is confirming what the law already provides. Because in these states, the law is saying the intended parents are the parents. And off the top of your head, uh, what states, what are a couple of examples of states that have this type of, of procedure in place? If you looked at a map that had these kinds of things in place, it doesn't look all that different from a political map. So the Northeast, now New York, California, Washington, Colorado, states that you probably would imagine. But it's important to recognize that judges in some states that maybe don't have a statewide law have still issued some parentage judgments. And so even in California, before there was a statewide law that made this clear, you had trial court judges issuing some of these judgments. So it's not that they don't exist in some states, it's that they're just, it's less clear that they're available. So that judgment of parentage is, is one important thing. The other thing is the acknowledgement of paternity has been made applicable to some non-biological parents who have children through assisted reproduction. And so a Colorado bill was just signed on May 31st. So I think that makes uh, 12 states that have expanded acknowledgements. And they allow a person to sign an acknowledgement of parentage with the birth parent if they are an intended parent of the child and the child was conceived through assisted reproduction other than surrogacy. and that then has the force of a judgment in 60 days. And so that's become a really critical way for especially same-sex couples to establish parentage in those jurisdictions. It seems to reflect the actual intent to become a parent and, and provide an option that not just affluent parents can afford. Yeah, and that was really the main driver of this, is that I'm not all that worried about people who have the means to have legal counsel and get an adoption or get a judgment. What I'm worried about is people who aren't able to do that and they should have just as easy a time of establishing their parentage. And so now, you know, in Connecticut, for instance, if a same-sex couple is in the hospital, if the woman is giving birth, part of the forms they are handed includes this acknowledgement of parentage and instructions about it. And that's really critical. Let's talk a little bit more about donors. Let's, I, I suppose we can start with sperm donors because historically I, I, I'm, I'm correct that they came first in time. Yeah, so um, yeah. I mean, egg donors required the technology that we now use in IVF, um, but uh, we've had sperm donors for a very long time. And of course, we've also had a very troubled history around some issues with sperm donation, some of which have been coming out more recently about um, doctors being sort of mass sperm donors. It's a lot more regulated today, even though there's still calls for more regulation. But generally, a sperm donor is not a parent under state law. But it's important to identify an, a distinction among states. In a number of states, that is only true if they're donating sperm for use by a married woman. And in some states, it's only true if the sperm is being handled by a licensed physician. Fascinating. So in some states, you can't use donor sperm for an unmarried woman? If you do, 
you are the sperm donor could be treated as the father. So it is, um, it is in some ways just a carrying forward of that marital presumption that I talked about, that we are fine with a married man being a non-biological father, um, but not so fine with an unmarried man. And so we have treated the sperm donor as a father, which of course is an impediment both to lesbian couples and to single women, um, which explains why many people used anonymous sperm donors so that there wouldn't be the potential for a custody action or support action involving the sperm donor. That's the way they were able to get around that is by anonymizing the sperm? Yeah, so then you have no way of actually identifying who the donor is. Um, to this day, in some states, a sperm donor, when the, do when the sperm is used by an unmarried woman, could find himself to be on the hook for child support. We had a conversation in the past uh, with with another law professor, I, I believe you're, you know, Glenn Cohen, about a donor who, because they maintained a relationship with the family, they were then found to be not a donor, but an actual parent. Yeah, so this is an issue where some people actually want the donor to have some involvement in the life of the child, but they don't intend that to be a parent-child relationship. Um, and so we've really made an effort to try and be very clear in the law that a donor is not a parent and genetic connection is not a basis on which to establish parentage for a donor. Now, that doesn't mean that a donor can't become a parent based on one of the functional doctrines that I talked about. There's a famous California case now involving the actor Jason Patrick, in which he was a sperm donor for his on-again, on off-again girlfriend at the time, um, but they were off when he was a sperm donor. And after she gave birth, they were back together. He formed a parent-child relationship. The kid called him dad. And the California appellate court said, he's a sperm donor. He can't establish parentage based on being a genetic father but he can establish parentage based on holding out the child as his child, which was California's, that's its functional parent doctrine. Um, and so we're gonna recognize him as a father based on non-biological criteria. And so that's really the place that law in these more progressive jurisdictions has worked towards. Um, but that requires clarity at the front end that the donor is not a parent based on genetics. So there is an example where a sperm donor changed their mind, I suppose. Are there other examples that are perhaps a little more remote? I mean, besides then remarrying uh, or, or getting back together with the recipient of the sperm, are there cases where sperm donors have attempted to assert rights? So there are cases in which you have conflicting evidence about intent. So there are cases in which the birth mother says, I always intended you to be a donor. And the genetic father says, I only gave sperm intending to be a father. And those cases really become one of, well, where does the evidence point? Does it point towards the person's a donor or does it point towards the person is a parent? And there's not a consistent through line in those cases. But what law has tried to do in jurisdictions that have 
regulated this more is try to be really clear about what is required to show evidence. So, you know, you should, it would be ideal if you had a written agreement. If you don't, having an oral agreement and what kind of evidence would be relevant to that so that there's a true meeting of the minds. How about with egg donors? I mean, I, I imagine some of the same legal rules will apply, but since egg donation isn't, it, I, I can't imagine it being an at-home procedure. How is egg donation different under the law? Yeah, so so one thing that you point out is that you can do donor insemination at home without a doctor, which is why those laws that require a doctor to be involved are so troubling. With egg donation, healthcare providers have to be involved. Many states have made clear that egg donors are to be treated like sperm donors and that neither are parents based on genetics. Um, but you still see cases arise about the status of an egg donor. Uh, it tends to arise not because an egg donor is seeking to be a parent. I don't even know of any published case in which that was the issue. But instead, because the uh, couple who had a child with donor egg breaks up, and suddenly dad says that mom is not a parent of the child because she's not the genetic parent of the child, um, even though she gave birth. Um, there was a famous Tennessee case on that about a decade ago in which the court, or two decades ago, in the early 2000s, in which the court said that the woman who gave birth is the mother of the child, the egg donor is not the mother of the, of the children. And that, of course, matches our intuitions about intent, um, but that's usually how that kind of question of the egg donor status arises. It seems like a pretty cold-blooded parental custody strategy to say to your ex-wife, you're not actually the mother, you were just the, the, care, the, the surrogate. So it's, this is more common than one would ever hope. Um, family law disputes and dissolution of people's intimate relationships leads them to do horrible things and make horrible arguments that the law might permit. Um, and so there are cases from practically every jurisdiction in which it's crystal clear that you both understood yourselves to be parents and usually a biological parent then tries to take advantage of the law to say that the other person who's the non-biological parent or non-genetic parent is not a parent of the child. And sometimes prevail? Yes, and too often prevails. Let's talk about something that can complicate matters a bit more. Professor, let's talk about surrogacy. What, what are the legal rights and legal structures that parents should be thinking of when, when considering surrogacy? First off, surrogacy is expensive. And most people who are contemplating having a child through surrogacy are going to work with a range of healthcare providers and attorneys. And so most of the legal frameworks that have been designed to accommodate surrogacy assume that there are healthcare providers and attorneys involved. What we've seen in recent years has been a real push to provide more extensive regulation for the practice. So we have had surrogacy in jurisdictions for a very long time now. And we've also had some jurisdictions that have prohibited surrogacy. So surrogacy is still prohibited in Michigan, for example. 
Um, but and New York prohibited surrogacy until two years ago, um, until 2020. So, um, so we still have jurisdictions in which um, they're not very receptive. But what most jurisdictions have done is one of two things. They've either not legislated on surrogacy, and so it's just up to courts to figure out how to muddle their way through it. In other words, they sort of allow it, but they haven't done anything explicit. Or they've explicitly allowed and regulated surrogacy. And that's what you're seeing increasingly in states like Connecticut and New York and California and Washington. And in those states, the intended parent principle is being extended to surrogacy so that the people who are intending to be the parents of the child are treated as parents of the child and their attorneys go into court and get them a judgment of parentage so that that's clear. Um, And an important thing to know is that because the person who gives birth is not an intended parent, that judgment also often includes instructions to the vital records administrators in the state about what to do with the birth certificate because you want the birth certificate to list the intended parents as the parents of the child. Oh, wow. So in some states, the birth certificate can entirely avoid the, the person who gave birth. Yes. And that's, so this is an issue and it's an issue that's, that's involving questions of different states' laws and how they interact. So you might have two intended parents in California and the person who's acting as a surrogate might be in Tennessee. California might have issued a judgment saying that the intended parents are the legal parents, and the surrogate was part of that court proceeding and you know consented to it. Um, but if the child's born in Tennessee, the birth certificate's going to come from Tennessee. And Tennessee might say, well, we're not going to issue a birth certificate that lists the intended parents. Now, I think they have an obligation to treat that California judgment as valid, but that's not what's happening on the ground. So the birth certificate question can get very complicated for people who are having children through surrogacy when everyone is not in the same jurisdiction. And while it might be something that could be sorted out, doing so can be time consuming and expensive. Exactly. So the the parents, even though California is happy to treat them as parents and they live in California, they might need to go to Tennessee and one of them might need to adopt the child and they might need to terminate the rights of the person who acts as a surrogate. And so it will take more court proceedings and more time. And when you say one may need to adopt there, am I correct that you're referring to the non-biological parent? Yes, though the biological parent would also need to do something to establish parentage. If So if the person who acts as a surrogate is a married woman, the law would treat her husband as the parent if the state doesn't recognize surrogacy arrangements. So that's one side of it. On the other side, you have states that are regulating in ways that are actually trying to protect the intended parents, but also the, the latest thing we've seen is states legislating to protect the rights of the surrogate, not to parent the child, but to be able to make decisions during the pregnancy, mm. having the right not to undergo a C-section that's not medically indicated, having the right to choose her own healthcare providers, having the right to make determinations about termination of pregnancy. That's fascinating because there you have biological parents who may feel like these are decisions that they should be making, or at least that they should have a say in. 
Yeah, and, and in the ideal world, the intended parents and the person who's acting as a surrogate have a good relationship of cooperation and they're on the same page. And the lawyers and agencies will be doing work at the outset to make sure that people are aligned on the kind of choices they would make. Um, but these issues do arise and people should be aware of, you know, if, if you're someone who um, would make a decision to terminate the pregnancy under some circumstances, you want to be sure that the person who is acting as a surrogate um, is okay with termination under some circumstances. Those are the kinds of things that can arise that people might not always think of. Are there cases where the biological parents have wanted an abortion and the surrogate has refused and, and carried the baby to term? So there was, there was one case in California um, in which the woman acting as the surrogate um, was carrying triplets and the intended parent um, wanted her to do what's called a selective reduction, um, that it was for the health of the children to actually not be carrying three. And she refused and the court didn't eventually decide that specific question. She carried to term and the intended parent is the parent of those children. Um, I can't imagine any court that would force someone to undergo such an intrusion into their bodily autonomy. But the fact that it could be part of an agreement might mean it's happening without us knowing. And so new laws like the law in Connecticut say that if you have a clause that says the person has to or undergo a termination, that would be unenforceable as against public policy. And I suppose the other way around, that would also be on the, the surrogate to make that decision. A surrogate would have the right to choose to have an abortion regardless of what the biological parents wanted. Yeah, so we don't have, so the, the general thrust of these new laws is to say that while a person is carrying the pregnancy, they have all of the rights to bodily autonomy that they would otherwise have. But that can raise some thorny questions about the obligations that parties to the agreement have to one another. And the hope is that courts don't get involved with that stuff because people are making decisions that respect one another's autonomy. But I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually see some some issues pop up. And some of them may be less uh, tragic. It may be you agreed, you contractually agreed to only eat organic food, and I think you're you're actually eating non-organic food. You're in breach. Those exist. So we so some of these laws now say the person who is carrying the pregnancy gets to make decisions about their health and welfare during the pregnancy, whereas you know that these uh, agreements sometimes include very specific provisions about the person's habits and eating and lifestyle and and all of that. And so those are difficult questions when we talk about someone who's not, you know, a a donor of egg or sperm, but someone who's actually um, carrying a pregnancy for nine months for intended parents. I guess we should touch on the the surrogate who is also a donor, uh, an egg donor. It's much less common these days. I understand, but does it still happen? Yes. So we don't really know, but I would probably say upwards of 95% of surrogacies in the U.S. are what we call gestational surrogacies, in which the person who acts as a surrogate is not the genetic parent of the child. It's either an egg donor or an intended parent. But some people have what 
used to be called traditional surrogacy arrangements. We call them genetic surrogacy arrangements today. And the person who acts as the surrogate is also the genetic parent. So is both the egg donor and the surrogate much more uh, affordable of a process and also can be done without as much of a intrusion into the body of the person who's acting as a surrogate or an egg donor because it can be done through just donor insemination or insemination with the sperm of the intended parent. But most jurisdictions have regulated and allowed gestational surrogacy, but not genetic surrogacy. And that means that if someone has a genetic surrogacy agreement, that when the person who acts as a surrogate gives birth, she would have to relinquish her rights and the intended parent would have to adopt the child. Professor, is this courts being a little bit discriminatory against less expensive procedures that are, are, are attempting to, to reach the same ends? I think it is reflecting an intuition that a lot of people still have that it's a different experience to uh, surrender one's genetic child than not. And so they treat it more like adoption, even though it is something that people are agreeing to upfront. And even though the empirical literature on surrogacy suggests that women who serve as surrogates in both situations don't experience the surrogacy any differently in terms of whether they view the child as their own. So even non-biological surrogates view the child as their own? So both gestational surrogates and genetic surrogates say, this is not our child. We never view the child as ours. We view the child as the child of the intended parents. And they often understand themselves as caregivers or caretakers temporarily. And so a state like Connecticut now has included genetic surrogacy and allowed it and recognized the intended parents as the parents. The only difference is we require a court to validate the agreement beforehand. And the reason for that is because healthcare providers don't necessarily need to be involved, we really want to make sure that this is a voluntary um, arrangement in which people knowingly are entering into it. And so that court check does it, but then we're going to treat it like any other form of surrogacy. I still think you're going to remain, you're still going to see the vast majority of surrogacies be gestational surrogacies um, because people's views about the importance of genetics. You mentioned a Connecticut law. Professor, was that one that you consulted on? Yeah, so that was a law. That was the Connecticut Parentage Act that I led the effort in Connecticut to pass. And I felt strongly about that. And so was glad that we were able to get that over the finish line and people were supportive here. And it's not that I think there's going to be a huge spike in genetic surrogacy, but I would like the option to be there for people. One final question on surrogacy. Is there generally a, a contract in place? Is there a surrogacy agreement that is required? Yeah, so there's almost always a uh, agreement. And in states that have regulated, like Connecticut and California, an agreement is required. And the agreement has to have certain things in it. And in, in some states now, like Connecticut, both the intended parents and the surrogate have to have independent legal representation. And then what's happening is the attorneys are going to court and saying, this is a compliant agreement. And so you should issue a parentage order uh, based on it. Um, And so that's why really attorneys are 
pretty essential in the surrogacy process in a way that they're not for other forms of assisted reproduction. One question about biological surrogates, do they have the right to change their mind if they, if they so choose at birth? So the reality is that given that there's only a few states that have treated genetic surrogacy like gestational surrogacy, in the vast majority of states, if someone is a genetic surrogate, they can change their mind at birth. In Connecticut now, they cannot. But in other states, because we're essentially treating it like adoption, they are the legal parent and can decide not to relinquish the child. Which would make for certainly a complicated relationship between those two legally recognized parents. So in that case, if one of the intended parents, it's usually the genetic father, because it's his sperm, the, let's say he's in a same-sex or different-sex relationship, the non-biological parent would ordinarily then not be able to be a legal parent, and custody would be shared between the person who was the surrogate and the genetic father. Yes, not good. And that, yeah, and then if that couple split up, the non-biological parent might have no rights. Right, yes. Professor, why don't we talk about what's coming? It sounds like in, in your description, some states have have begun to to pass more uh, uh, have begun to pass laws that are more reflective of the current reality and the intent intent of the parents is that what you see coming on the horizon more of the same more more of a trend of what we've seen on on the coastal states so that's the hope and i think you know of course we've We've seen some states move in that direction more quickly than others, but I will say, you know, there will be bills that would expand parentage in places like Texas and Alabama um, and North Dakota, you know, on the legislative agenda in the coming years. So my hope is more states do move in this direction. I think the fact that Colorado in the 2022 session just did this is a good sign that we're at least moving off the coast. The thing that states will have to deal with is that even if they don't pass laws that provide these kinds of parentage mechanisms, people are having children in these states and they keep confronting courts when they have moments of crisis like a death or a dissolution. And so courts are going to have to keep dealing with these issues, even if the law is not clear. And often you see, we had this in Connecticut, the Connecticut Supreme Court essentially begging the legislature years ago, pass laws that make this clear. And so hopefully more states will do that. A quick stop for those listening for attorney CLE credit. The code for this interview is 22991. Again, that's 22991. And now back to the interview. Why don't we touch on as well the federal nature of our laws? How are these rights? Are they portable to other states? You mentioned a family in California with a, a surrogate in Tennessee. Let's imagine uh, a family in California moves to Tennessee. Are the California rights recognized? Yeah, so the important thing for families to do is when, when they are, uh, have reason to believe that another state might be hostile to their family. So we're tending to, to talking about LGBTQ families here, but other families who might be formed through assisted reproduction is to 
get some judgment that recognizes their parentage rights because judgments uh, are given full faith and credit under the Constitution from one state to another. Laws, on the other hand, can be subject to the policy objections of another state. And so let's say you have a lesbian couple in Connecticut who has a child with donor sperm. Connecticut law would treat them now both as legal parents of that child. But if they move to Alabama or they move to Idaho or they move to Oklahoma, there is a chance that if they then broke up and went to court, that the court would say that the non-biological mother is not a parent of the child. But if they got a judgment in Connecticut or in some states an adoption, if a judgment's not available, that judgment or adoption should be given full faith and credit in another state. And the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed that result in which it said when you had a same-sex couple who had did an adoption in Georgia and then they were in Alabama court and the Alabama Supreme Court said uh, adoption isn't valid, the U.S. Supreme Court said no, an adoption is a judgment, it gets full faith and credit, it's not for the Alabama courts to question whether Georgia could have done this. Professor, we mentioned at the beginning uh, that in some states there's only two parents. How many parents can a child actually have? So, you know, with reproductive technology, but also just with the way people form families and divorce and remarriage, children might have more than two people who are parenting them, or they might have two legal parents, but one or both of those folks might not be parenting them, um, and someone else might be parenting them. And so states have increasingly had to address the question of whether a third person, let's say, can be uh, a parent. And now a few states following California's lead in 2014 have passed laws that affirmatively allow a court to recognize more than two parents for a child um, if it's either in the best interest of the child or it would be harmful to the child if the third parent wasn't recognized. Um, so. Take the the California case um, that we had talked about, Michael H. versus Gerald D., which is a U.S. Supreme Court case from 1989. In that case, um, Carol, who was a a model, traveled the world. She was married to Gerald, who was an oil executive, also traveling the world. And she had a child with her neighbor, Michael. Uh, She and Gerald were maybe going to split up, and Michael uh, was staying with the child at some times, and the child and Carol visited Michael in the Caribbean, and then Gerald would also come and stay with the child, and both Gerald and Michael treated the child, Victoria, as their child. Wow. But the question was, does Michael have the ability to challenge the marital presumption that treats Gerald as the child, as the father of the child. And the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed California's decision to um, not allow Michael to establish paternity. And in that case, Justice Scalia said that uh, California law, like nature itself, recognizes only one father. The attorney for the child in that case had asked the court to allow the child to maintain relationships with both men as fathers. It wasn't even for custody. It was just for some type of uh, visitation rights. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, so fast forward to 2018. There's another case in California. Um, child um, is born to a married woman. The woman uh, was having a sexual relationship with a coworker. Um, she had the child. Her husband knew that the child was the genetic child of the coworker. All three of them, she stays married to her husband. All three of them are involved in the child's life. Child has autism and special needs that require medical attention and cost money, and they're all contributing. But eventually, married couple decides they don't want the genetic father around anymore. Um, he sues, and the California Court of Appeals says, under this new California law, it would be detrimental to this child not to treat the biological father as a father. And so all three people are parents of the child. And so that's really what's changed um, in the past couple of decades, at least in a few jurisdictions. And that's fascinating because you could imagine an argument that having this constant reminder of an infidelity as a, as a part of your life uh, could be bad for the, the marriage, but the best interest of the child was uh, preeminent. The court in that case actually said, look, married couple, you had the ability to keep the biological father out of your lives at the get-go, but you didn't do that. And so once you've allowed him in you to, and allowed him to form this relationship, you can't now decide that you no longer want it. You know, I wonder if as more and more courts are accepting more than two parents, do we run into democratic principles? Is two out of the three required to make important decisions? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting issue and people have raised the concern that, oh, if we have multiple parents, it's going to be even more conflictual and there's gonna be more issues. Um, what we see is that in a lot of these scenarios, the person who's being recognized as an additional parent, in many cases, is the primary caregiver of the child. Um, and there's already two legal parents who have been recognized. So it's not like that California case I described. Um, and so that person then might be the person who's made the decision maker. But courts have a lot of latitude, just we talked about their discretion, to decide who has legal custody and physical custody over the child. And um, just because they recognize more than two parents um, doesn't mean that they'll actually give all parental rights to those parents. In other words, one parent might have visitation and another might have custody. One parent might get to make major decisions for the child, the other might not. Um, and so that's really how courts are dealing with um, those questions, just as they do with two-parent families. Which in many ways seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, I'm thinking of someone who has a very close relationship with their ex-stepfather, um, so they have two parents who they have relationships with, but in many ways they were uh, raised by the former husband of the biological mother. And I wonder in that case, if that ex-stepfather, I'm not sure if I'm even using the right term, actually has legal rights. Yeah, so generally a step-parent uh, child relationship is not a legal parent-child relationship, and the step-parent would have to adopt the child. Um, many step-parents who would adopt the child can't do so because they could only adopt the child if the non-custodial parent, i.e. not the parent they're married to, uh, relinquishes their parental rights, which they won't do. And so these multi-parent laws are a way for some 
people who are step parents legally, but are parenting the child and the child views them as a parent to um, be able to be treated as a parent. And you often see this, especially in cases where the biological parent in the household dies and the child's only been with the step parent and the step parent now has no right to maintain custody of the child. But California has also allowed uh, adoption that doesn't terminate the right of the non-custodial parent. So in that case, if everyone agreed, the step parent and the two biological parents could consent to adoption by the step parent without terminating the rights of the non-custodial parent. And these, in other words, multi-parent laws can actually help people have laws that reflect the actual families they want to form and have formed. Douglas Nijam is a professor at Yale Law School. Douglas, thank you for your time. This was really fascinating. Thank you for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.